In association with the Omniverse Comics Guide, this is the Cave of Solitude, your pop culture and comic book podcast coming to you from all over the world. I'm your host, Eric Anthony, and this is episode 300. Boom. Let us begin. Uh, this is this is episode 300, and a lot of people were asking me, what are you going to do for episode 300? Are you going to do a big episode, something big planned? And I said, no, not really. And then when I thought about it, I said, there's only one person to ask for episode 300. And I thought of you. So thank you oh, for doing so this. Oh, that's so sweet. Oh, happy to be here. Honestly, and I'm not just saying this because you're on, but I tell people this often. You're one of my most favorite people to speak with in the oh. world. Well, we've had some good conversations. We've we had have. some really good conversations. We, we, we have. And uh, I think it was the first one that really left an impact on me. And it kind of even changed the way I approach uh, reading your work and kind of other things that I, that I would read. So I appreciate that. So it's only fitting. The guy who wrote Captain America 300 would be on for episode 300. That's how oh. I figured it. There we go. So, so I, I hope this turns out better than Captain America 300 did. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I, I liked everything that you did with that run. I mean, maybe it didn't end how you wanted it to, but I really enjoyed that story. It's oh, a I love the run, but I think we've talked about the story. That that, that, that particular story got, uh, got sliced and diced by hands that were not mine, yeah. Yeah, unfortunately, that's uh, comic editorial, right? But you've been busy working on a bunch of things recently. What are some of the stuff yeah. that uh, people can, new things from, from you that people can find? New things, new things, new things. Just in June, just came out a new novella that I wrote called The Excavator. You can read a free sample of that on a site called Neotext, N-E-O-T-E-X-T. Um, the, the website address might be Neotext Corp or something, but if you look up Neotext, you'll find it. And there's a free sample there, and you, then you can, through them, you can click over to Amazon and purchase it either as an ebook or as an actual physical book. Physical, physical things are nice. I like them. Yes, <laughs> I prefer them myself. I'll, clearly, from behind me, I prefer physical books yeah, as well. Yeah, let's see. The um, Ben Riley Spider-Man collection will be out probably in a week or two. Very cool. Uh, the Justice League Infinity collection came out, I think month or two ago you know collecting that series which was a continuation of uh of the justice league unlimited tv series uh, i've got a new spider-man project that's coming out in november called spider-man the lost hunt fantastic which I'm very excited about and i can't get into too many details but uh, but launching within the next couple of months we've, i've got my first kickstarter excellent uh and all I can say is uh, uh, we will be launching not just one, but multiple titles through this Kickstarter. All new original stuff, working with some great artists, and that's all I can say for now. But if you follow me on social media, announcements are coming soon. And there'll be a website that we can uh, divert you to before the Kickstarter launches so you can so you can sign up. That's wonderful. Um, I mean, I know it's it's a little bit premature, but when the Kickstarter does begin, I'd love to have you back on to talk about it. Oh, I'd be happy to talk about because you know these things. You really need to beat the drum for these things. Yeah, and and there it seems to be the new wave of how to how people are one looking for new stories, new creations, new ideas, and they want to get behind. They want to support something that they can really get behind, as opposed to 
the traditional way of here's what we're making and this is what you got. Now we can actually support the creators that are making. Yeah, cool yeah, stuff. it's it's one more wall between uh, the creator and the audience that's just been dissolved by yeah. doing it this way. So, like I said, I've never done it, uh, and I've thought about it for years. And then a friend of mine, whose name is David Baldy, who's a long term, long time writer and producer for television, said, "Hey, let me run it for you." So great! I'll just worry about the creative stuff, and and he's uh, he's he's running it, and he's also wonderful. Since he's a writer, he's a wonderful creative mind to bounce things off of. So it's been really exciting, really exciting. And I can't I can't get into what things are and who I'm working with yet on these projects, but uh, it's I'm I'm thrilled about it. That's that's great. I'm really happy for you. It's gonna it'll do well. The excavator. Um, speaking of creator own things that you've worked on, I haven't read it, but. I'm I'm going to pick it up. Can you describe it for us? Because it's it's a novella. It's not directly a comic book. No, it's not. A, it's not a comic book. It does have a, a, a neotext. Forgetting the, the excavator for for a moment, neotext is a really cool site because they are devoted to launching new fiction and nonfiction, uh, a wide wide variety of stuff. But a lot of a lot of material, uh, you know, science fiction, fantasy, uh, detective stuff that would appeal to appeal to comic book fans. You know. This, this particular story is a, sort of a supernatural thriller. It has 10 beautiful illustrations by my friend Vasilis Godzillas, who's a wonderful Greek artist who I've worked with in the past. Um, I'll just give you the premise because I don't want to give away the story. Right. A woman, a woman wakes up one morning. She's in bed with her husband. She wakes up and she sees uh, this child standing at the end of her bed. has no clue who this kid is or how this kid got there. And, uh, you know, at first she's half asleep, so she's kind of enchanted, but almost like it's like this angelic being that has appeared. Then she realizes, wait a minute, there's a strange kid in my bedroom. The kid starts crawling into bed with her. She freaks out, knocks the kid on the floor. The husband wakes up, and the kid says uh, to the husband, Daddy, why did Mommy do that? And this is her son, except she has absolutely no memory that her son ever existed. She remembers her husband. She remembers her daughter. She remembers every other aspect of her life. But somehow the memory of her child has completely vanished. And, you know, they take her to the hospital. They check her out. Everything seems to be fine. They can't figure out what has done this to her brain. And then she gets a text message saying, well, if you want the memory of your of your son returned, please pay us $250,000. And if you don't, we'll take your daughter next. And I'll just leave it there. And it goes off into some very uh, interesting, unexpected, and I hope by the end, uh, emotional places yeah well with uh with you at the helm i'm sure that it'll go into some emotional places you can't avoid that yeah yeah we hope so that's, <laughs> if that's... nothing else on my worst day i think even if the story sucks and i've written <laughs> stories that have sucked over the years you know uh there's there is psychological and emotional investment you know right when you say that you've written stories that you feel have sucked, what what comes to your mind? I, you know what? Here's what I learned long ago. Yeah. Don't say that publicly because, <laughs> because I have been at many a convention where someone has walked up to me with a comic book and said, this book means so much to me. And it's a story that I always thought was like, oh, my God, that story? I screwed that one up royally. And yet there's someone out there who read that story and loved that story. And I don't like it when people whose work I love, you know, uh, are, are knocking their own work in public because it might be something, something that that really means something to me. So I I keep that private, That's <laughs> and good I don't advice. I don't broadcast that in public. Yeah, you know what? You're you're right. You shouldn't yuck someone else's yum because what you felt was a failure was it, it succeeded for somebody. So if it had a positive effect, 
Let it be. Yeah, you know, you know, I'm a big Beatles fan, and and you know, John Lennon was always very honest, honest to a fault in his in his interviews, and you, they 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 go through all these Beatles songs, and he talk about his own work, and go, that was a piece of garbage, that was a piece of crap, oh, that was awful, and I'm thinking, that's a great song, <laughs> and the other thing that happens is that people start to go, well, if the guy that wrote that book or wrote that song thinks it's a piece of garbage, maybe I'm wrong, <laughs> maybe yeah. it is, you know, yeah. Um, so it's, I've learned over the years that it's wise not to knock my own work in public. You know, let, let the audience decide what resonates with them and what doesn't. Because I'm not always the best uh, best person to judge. I'm too close to it. That's right. And it may be that, that that story that I see all the failures in could be a wonderful story. And the one that I think is just such a perfect little jewel is the one that really is a piece of shit. You know? <laughs> so who knows? Who knows? That's true. Once, once the story gets released into the wild... It's, it belongs to the audience as much as it does to me. Mm, that's a nice way to look at it. How do you how do you keep the creative fires burning? Because I feel very happy for you that you're constantly getting work. You're you're asking you're being asked to return to uh, characters that you help define. Like what's what is it for you that keeps this creative fire inside of you alive? <sighs> well, that's a good question. I think it's just who I am. Uh, you know, I, I, I've told this, I don't know if I told this story to you before, but years, maybe 20 years ago, I went through a bit of a, a, a crisis and I thought, maybe I don't want to be a writer anymore. And, and I really struggled with that. And I really had to take my, cause you know, we identify with not just who we are, but what we do becomes who we are. So what are you? I am a writer. You know, this is like, not, this is my identity. So the idea of letting go of that identity, I had to really struggle and tear that away and surrender that to the universe and say, okay, you take that and, and, and tell me what, what I should do. And the answer that came back, and I, in my imagination, just the way the, the, the universe spoke to me was like, idiot, you're a writer. <laughs> you know what I mean? If, if I wasn't being paid to do it, no, you're not a writer. Let's take change that. I'm a storyteller. If I wasn't being paid to do it, I'd be laying on the floor staring into space making up stories anyway. Do you know what I mean? I'm lucky enough that I get paid for it. But it's who I am. I'm a creative being. I've been creative since I was a kid, whether it was drawing, whether it was playing music, writing songs, playing in bands, you know, writing stories. Uh, it's just who I am and what I do. And I will, oh, as long as there are, are, are ideas in my head, I'm going to keep doing it. Happily, people still want to pay me to do it. So that's a very nice thing, you know. That's great. It, you, how, you said it was 20 years ago when you were going through this? Thereabouts. It was probably late, late 90s, early 2000s, somewhere in there, yeah. Mm -hmm. And so, okay. I'm trying to just gauge how old you would have been at the time. Just thinking of my... I my, was yeah, probably uh, early to mid-40s. Yeah. Not so far off the age I'm at now, and I find myself in a very similar place. It's so It's fun. important. It's important to question these things. It yeah. really, really is. To periodically question the foundations of the things that we just take for granted. You know, this is this structure stands here and it always will. You know, um, uh, I've been through periods in my life where I've had to burn every structure to the ground. You know, internally, obviously, I wasn't running around starting mm -hmm. fires. <laughs> yeah, of course. <laughs> you know, and then what you may find is that you may rebuild 90% of those structures. Right, but you're re rebuilding them fresh, and the ones that you don't rebuild don't need to be rebuilt. But it's important to periodically question those things. It really is. What got you through that? What What was it for you that made you uh, come to that place of realization and and somewhat peacefulness? Uh, are we talking specifically in terms of my writer self? 
whatever it was. You know, I think it's 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 kind of what I said before. It's about surrender. You know, if you you have to surrender these things at a certain point, you have to give them up. And if you really surrender them, the universe will come back with an answer. And um, and and sometimes it's a it's a joyful process. Sometimes it's a really I've had you know periods of my life long ago, especially when the, that period when I really had to burn everything to the ground. It was not an easy process. It was not a fun process. It was a profoundly painful process on so many levels on every in every corner of my life. But it was worthwhile. It was worthwhile because what what grew out of that soil after I burned it all down uh, were structures that have lasted most of them till now and hope will probably last the rest of my life. That's uh, that's very sobering to hear because it's it's what I've been thinking about. But also when you when you hear it expressed from like I said, a person who I I really enjoy speaking to, it's like okay, everything's gonna be all right. You just gotta go through it. And it's okay that you feel, I mean, personally for myself, I don't know if you felt it, but a little bit crazy. I don't know if I know who I am. And then at the same time, it all comes back. It's like, you know exactly who you are. You just have to question every aspect of it. Put it in a mirror. Really check. Inspect it a little bit deeper. There's a core. There's a core of us. I think this is true for everyone. For some of us, it maybe it's easier than others to get to that core. But there's a core of us that is that is foundational, fundamental, and never changing. You know, yeah. a lot of stuff around it. We may put on twenty different masks through our lives, but the person behind that mask is always there. You know, um, and sometimes you know we have masks that. Well, here we go. We're launching into it already. We have masks that we never put on. Someone else put on us. Right. That's you right. You know. Um, you know, I, I, I did a, a story I did for Vertigo years ago called The Last One. Uh, it was a, a miniseries about this immortal being uh, named Merwan. Um, and and there's, a, there's a scene in there based on something I'd read about a holy man once where, where he, he's disappeared and they find him and he's covered himself. Are you still there? Mm-hmm. I'm here. Oh, because you disappeared from my screen. Mm-hmm. Okay. So he's covered himself in shit, basically, and it's hardened around him, you know? And um, I remember reading this story about this holy man who had done that. And I said, why did he do that? And my, the, 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 the conclusion that I came to was that it was a metaphor, that he was working out some universal thing for all of us. Because, you know, we come into this world uh, as, as that authentic self, who we truly are, and that, that part of ourselves that is always fundamentally the same through our life, if not through our lifetimes. And we get a lot of shit dumped on us. And that shit hardens like a shell around us. And we begin to identify not with the fundamental self inside, but with the shell itself. We think that's us. That hardened crap is us. Hmm. You know, so it's really important periodically, you gotta peel that crap off and get back to what's underneath there, you know? Or, or sometimes, you know, to, to use the mask metaphor, uh, there, there's a very valuable mask for a certain point in your life. This is who I am. I'll put this one on and live this one and play with this one. And then time goes by and it, it, it doesn't work anymore. That's not who you are. So you need to take that off and put on the face that's authentic to you in this moment as opposed to the, that, other, that other mask may have been completely authentic to you in that moment. But it's not anymore because there are levels where we're constantly changing and there's that level where we're always kind of eternally, fundamentally the same. Right. There's some ways I think, you know, there's a fundamental something. I, I, you know, I think I, I close my eyes and I'm the same person that I was in some ways when I was five years old. Yeah. Yeah. You know what I mean? There's a fundamental essence of who we are that 
what grows around it grows and evolves and deepens, we hope, that with time and age you gain wisdom, you know. But the fundamental being, yeah. um, I can think about being four or five years old, this little creative kid laying on the floor drawing and, and looking at the world with these eyes of wonder, and that's still the essential part of who I am. Yeah. There's all kinds of stuff that's come and gone around that, but the, the, that, my, that essential nature remains the same. Yeah, I, I can totally relate to that. I often see myself as being that same person who's just trying to figure out how to be an adult. And it, right. it, you, yeah. you collect the data you need to, to go along with it. But ultimately, I often see myself like you're still only five, six years old because you love a lot of those same things. All of the things that you want in your mind that would uh, be happiness for you they're the same things that you like they're when you really go down to the core it's that to the child. core yeah it's yeah, the exactly. child yeah yeah and, but then that, that core deepens and it widens yeah with time you know and obviously we're not like we're not viewing the world as a five-year-old would because we have had all these experiences but yeah i think there's a fundamental self and 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 even behind that child is an even more fundamental self which is that if you want to call it that cosmic self that we brought into this body when we were born and that will be there after we're gone, you know? Yeah. Um, I'm always worried that I'm not going to be able to ha have as have as a, a profound conversation as our last one, but it doesn't have to, I never have to worry about that. It's very easy. <laughs> well, you know, what, here's what, we've set up a rhythm. Yeah. You know what I mean? If we've yeah. set up a rhythm, I know that I'm free to go to these places with you where I was talking to somebody else I might not be. Okay, good. I'm happy that, that you feel that way. Um, I'm also happy that a lot of your stuff is being collected from the you know decades of your work because I didn't realize until I was you know going through this Captain America run that I, I'd like to get into with you. Uh, these comics are 40 years old. It's incredible. I, I never realize how long you've been doing this for. Yeah, yeah, but, I've been doing it for a long time. <laughs> but this is this is a I would say an earlier part of your career clearly. And yes. the Captain America run with you and Mike Zek and Paul Neary, in my opinion, and I'm biased because I'm a J.M. DeMatteis fan, um, but I'm also a Captain America fan. But for me, it's up there in the top three. That's, you know, that's great. It's one of those things where I've seen over the years, it's sort of, um, again, when you release it into the wild, you have the wild, you have no control of the way it's, the way it's uh, perceived. I think when it was coming out, People liked it. They thought it was okay. I never felt like it was beloved or anything, you know? And over the years, more and more people have come to me to talk about that run and how much it meant to them and how great they think it is. And, you know, there you go. That's the audience decided that. I didn't decide that. Um, and I'm very, very grateful. I, to me, you know, that was a period, it was really, for me, the, the demarcation point is Moonshadow, like in 1985. Uh, and, and really, really finding myself and my voice as a writer. Uh, and I feel, you know, in the, in the Cap era, I was still finding me. But I can go back and look at that stuff and go, you know what? That was pretty good. You know, it wasn't all, you know, the, I, I could, uh, and I, I look at those and I can see the first three, four, five issues. I'm kind of stumbling around trying to like find it. And then I kind of find it. And then, you know, when you're working with Zach, and when Zach and I, also it took us four or five issues to find a rhythm with each other. Right. And then we found that and we built on that. And then we continued to build on that when we did Craven's Last Hunt, you know, mm. uh, whatever it was, five years after that. Um, so, some, you know, sometimes you, you, you jump in and you land and it just hits, you hit the ground running. But especially in those days, I was still new to the business. So it usually took me a little while to figure these things out. And, you know, there's a certain 
there's a, there's a there's a difference in voice in some ways between the way comics are written then and now. But I think there's same thing we were talking about. Uh, there's an essential nature to my writing that even in the you know before it had evolved into something else, that essential nature is still there, and I think you can find that in those stories. Yes. And and looking back, you know, we did some fun, interesting stuff. One of the things that I'm very grateful for that I didn't even think twice about at the time was the introduction of Arnie Roth. Yeah. Who was Captain America's best friend growing up? They kind of pulled Arnie and turned him into Bucky in the first yes, Captain America that's, movie. That's what I was um, thinking when I read the book. I said, yeah. "This is what they base Bucky on." It is what they. It has to yeah, be. It has he to was be. Steve's. Steve's. He was scrawny little Steve's protector, the guy that always watched out for him. And then they meet all these years later, and and Arnie was gay. Right. At a time when you really couldn't even truly say the word gay in comics, so I had to write it in such a way that it was clear without saying it, you know? Was, was um, that an editorial thing? Was it just culturally that's what it was like? I think just, I'm, I'm trying to remember, you know, there was some editorial pushback uh, around that. There was, in one of those issues, uh, the Red Skull has captured Arnie and dresses him up like Joel Grey in Cabaret and makes him give this demeaning speech about who he is, right. tries, to, tries to break him. And there was one one page that I remember that not the editor but the editor in chief at the time changed because he thought it was too direct, you know. Uh, but luckily, when you turn the page, uh, Captain America gives a speech, basically saying that Arnie's love for his boyfriend Michael is 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 as pure and 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 valid as Steve's love for Bernie, you know. So I mean, it's really clear. It's really clear. So whatever they changed on one page didn't really matter. But yeah, for whatever reason, we couldn't come out and just say. What's it? I mean, forty years ago, it's a different world. You know, the, the gay thing was a big deal. You think about it now, it's like every TV show, everything you see. You know, that's just part of of the um, the tapestry of who we are, and, and it should be reflected in our media. But back then, it wasn't. But I wasn't thinking in my head at the time. Oh, I'm going to do a breakthrough story and introduce a great character. Blah blah blah. What I was thinking at the time was. What, what is Captain America? Who is he? What does he represent? And he represents the broadest tent of what America is. You know, he had a girlfriend who was Jewish. His best friend, you know, Sam Wilson was a black man. Um, and I thought, well, it'd be very cool if he had a gay friend too. So to like, just, you know, complete the tapestry here. Let's, let's broaden it out. But I never thought I was doing anything significant. And honestly, when it came out, I didn't hear anything. <laughs> It's right. like nobody noticed. And then years later, I start hearing from people, uh, you know, gay people that tell me how much that story meant to them. That's really cool. You know, I wasn't even I'm always following the story and the characters and what feels natural and right for the story and for those characters. Not not trying to make a statement necessarily for Captain America. That was just a natural thing to have Arnie Roth in that story. And that that years later, that story means something to people and has impacted them in a positive way. That's really a cool thing. Yeah, I, I was going to bring up Arnie Roth as well, because you went your your Captain America run one. It's you and Mike Zek. I mean, just that's the price of admission. You're going to check it out. Mike Zek Art doing Captain America for an extended amount of time. You know it's going to be good to look at. And an early version of, of you writing these, these stories for Marvel, you're fresh. So these are, you know, two fresh guys that later on, as we as comic book fans, we see what they do later on. So just for that, it deserves an omnibus. But the themes that you guys tackle, it's timely for today but it just shows it's time it's timelessness right and none right. of it none of it is forcing a statement none of it is cashing in on you know what sometimes people accuse of the agenda 
And I feel it what it executed all those ideas better without it being um, taking a very specific side on issues. You just mm-hmm. you, you followed who the character was, whereas now they're trying to make the character be who they want him to be. If that makes sense. Yeah, I'm not. I'm, I'm not up on what what's going on with Captain America right now. But to me, and I think to a lot of people, the ideal Captain America story. Captain America represents the American dream, yes. not the American reality. Right. So the interesting story is exploring the gap between those two things, and yes. that's one of the things we tried to do while also humanizing Steve, building on great work that Roger Stern and John Byrne had done. Right. Um, you know, giving Steve a real life, which he'd never really had. I think in, in, in the Stanley days, he was a cop for an issue and a half or something like that, you know. But he really it was always just he was just always running around being Captain America, and, and Stern and Byrne gave him a life, and yeah. we built on that and expanded on that. And I love the relationship between Steve and Bernie. You know, um, uh, we really I hope deepened and expanded that. I don't know whatever happened to her character. She she must be still out there in the Marvel universe somewhere. I don't think. I don't think anybody killed her off or anything, did they? No, they they eventually in the Gruenwald run they would break up and stay close friends. But I'm not exactly sure where where she is now. But it was such a natural, beautiful love story between the two of them. Like it was very adult in a kid book without it ever being inappropriate. Mm-hmm. And it was all the the progression of their bond and what they were willing to do for each other you i don't know i'm one of those suckers who's like once they get together with the right partner like that's a a new aspect for you to explore you don't need that character to be without a a spouse it doesn't weigh them down it gives them something more to to consider so i i I wish they would have gone further with bernie and steve but well, the good news about comic books is everything is old as new again, and you never know she could show up tomorrow. I mean, I've, in the recent years, I've seen so much of you know stuff that I introduced in Spider-Man come back. Yeah. Um, and you know, Ben Riley's back, and, and and his girlfriend Janine came back, and this you know this one came you now. Doctor Kafka's back, and you know all these things. So uh, every we're all building on each other constantly. You know, yeah. everyone's building on what came before, and and people that were, you know, kids reading my stuff are now adults writing this stuff. And oh, I remember that! I love that character, so I want to bring that character, which was the same thing I was doing. Yeah, you know, the um, the themes that you tackle, it's very interesting that in my reading of it, you make Cap seem apolitical. He never shows his colors one way. He, you would never know who he would vote for. Which I, I, oh, we I, know who he would vote. Roger Stern said that Cap was a was a New Deal Democrat. You know, FDR, nineteen forties all the way. So I think I think that's true. But he doesn't get involved in politics because, because again, his thing is the dream. Here's the problem, though, especially in the world we live in today. A lot of people view the American dream very differently. Cap views it in the broadest, most inclusive, most compassionate way possible. Right. To someone else out there right now. That's not the American dream. Do you know what I mean? They, you know, they they can't wrap their heads around an inclusive American dream. So, on one hand, he's not political, but you know, the world we live in now, even when you're not political, somehow people make it political because someone else is going to accuse you of something. You know, the most innocent thing now stirs up controversy yes. in this world that we live in. You know. Yeah, and and it also is interesting to see in some of your dialogue and I and I took photos of them and I posted them on my Instagram just as like a reminder to us all there is those those issues where some of Steve's roommates or the um, 
the landlady that he lived with would right. get all excited about something she saw in the news and would say like, we've got to shut this down. And Steve right. was the one who lived, you know, he was literally American propaganda in the war right. against right. fascism. But he's saying, hey, we got to deal with the bad ideas and the good ones. When you start right. saying people can't speak, I mean, that's not democracy. Right, exactly. Exactly. Regardless you know, uh, of which side you you lean on, and and I think today there's there's people who you would think are very much about an inclusivity, but they're more like that character in the uh, the neo Nazi versus the Jewish group that Cap has to pull them both by the collar and say, "Hey, you're turning into him, and you right. you're, you're an idiot." <laughs> right. Exactly. And that was you hit the point, which I think a lot of people missed. It wasn't like you know. People thought some people when I see them writing about it now, they think it was it was creating an equality between the two, and it wasn't. It was just what you said. The other guy, through reacting through hate, was turning into the very thing he was opposing, and the other guy was a hateful idiot. <laughs> you know, the difference between writing that story then and writing that story now. When I was writing that story then, when I thought about neo Nazis. This was a tiny little fringe thing off in the corner. Like even in the story, there's like just a small group of people in the park while this guy's ranting and most of them were there to protest, you know? Right. Um, now, what we see in America, certainly, that's a lot more of that going on now. And and so you know, I, I think about how would that story, how would I write that story now? How would that story be weighted now when that is really much more of a looming threat in this country than it's ever been? I think the way you wrote it is is the still the way. Because well, the bottom line, you know, the, the the core of it, let's get back to core. You know, there's the core and there's what's woven around the core. The core of it would be the same, that you don't, you know, as, uh, as Martin Luther King said, you, you don't oppose hate with hate. You can't because yeah. uh, you just get consumed in it and you do. You become the very thing that you're that you're, that you're fighting against. Um, but I think what what's woven around it would have to be weighted differently because the world is different, you know? It, it's sort of like... Um, my, my story, The Life and Times of Savior 28, which started as a Captain America story back in the 80s, but while, by the time I wrote it, uh, which was about 10 years ago, um, I think maybe 2009, 2010, you know, the political landscape was very, very different. So it was this, the core of the story, the message was the same. What was around it, how we approached what was around it was very different because the world had shifted. Mm-hmm. Yet the core, the core message was the same, which is, which is the core message even of that story, which is... The, the, the biggest weapon we have is compassion. Yeah. And I think when you really explore that part of Steve's personality is you often use the word compassion and be mm-hmm. able to see things from a compassionate place. Because ultimately, uh, even when you do the exploration of each of those villains, whether it would be Vermin later on or um, the, the issue with uh, the Red Skull, and you just see how much hate these people have inside of them. But it comes from somewhere. You you right. even you even try to break Captain America by giving him enough reason to hate, but pulling him back and saying, "That's not the way this is going to work out." Right, because we, because we all have all of that in us. You yes. know, we all have all of that in us. And and you know, I see myself sometimes. I'm looking at some horrible story on the news, some political event or whatever it is, and. There's a part of me that's just ready to just yell at the screen, you know what I mean? And there's the other part of me that knows it's not exactly the most helpful way to go. You know? yeah. <laughs> throwing a brick at my TV screen is not going to help anything, or throwing a brick at another person is not going to help anything. You know, but we're human, and we see these these 
awful things that can happen in life and these awful actions that people take. But, you know, to talk about the villains, not just in Captain America, but in general, what I realized over the years is, you know, one of my things has been getting in the villains' heads, trying to understand why they do what they do. And I realized only reason, oh, that's an exercise in compassion. Mm -hmm. If you can look at this person who has done these awful things and see them not as, quote, just a villain, but as a human being, Mm -hmm. um, you're exercising compassion and you're broadening your heart and you're broadening your mind. You still can oppose that thing. That's right. You know, I'm not saying don't oppose that thing, but try, and, and, and nor am I saying that I am an expert at this in any way, shape, or form. You know what I mean? But to at least attempt to live our lives that way from a place of compassion and shining a light and understanding, uh, I think is the only way to live, really. It's and, the attempt you know, because sometimes yes. you'll get it right and sometimes you, you'll yeah. fail at exercising it. Yes, but it's fail the, miserably. Yeah. Fail just, just miserably. And I have failed miserably that many times. But the trick is not that you fail but that you keep trying and you keep trying to keep your heart open. Yeah. Well, I mean reading reading through these issues even when you get to the Black Crow issue, just the way that uh, the conversation and the dialogue that takes place, that's what's missing. Right. And it's it's that reminder of like, listen, we can't it can't just be all this way and all that way. And it's fresh. It's it's refreshing to read comics where you get that lesson again. Mm-hmm. Where, where even the those thing who I remember that, us, okay, Go ahead. I'm sorry. No, ahead. no. Just even those who oppose us, there's a way for us to recognize where we are in the reality and have humility and that sense of uh, regret, but also compassion to have redeeming relationships right right and the thing i remember at the black cross story that i really liked at the time and i still really like is that the battle ends by steve getting on his knees and realizing that the thing to do is not to fight but to but to kneel before this spirit of the old america and essentially surrender himself yeah you know and that's what ends the battle and that's what pleases <clears throat> as black cross says the, the great spirit is pleased you know because to acknowledge uh, what was done to Native Americans, to acknowledge that their, you know, their impact, our impact on them and their impact on America, was really important. One of my plans, when you know, when I after the debacle of Captain America uh, 300, you know, when I was going to stay on the book, was eventually, after uh, I, was, I had a whole long storyline which we probably have talked about. And I don't need to get into, but ultimately, um, I was going back and forth between either Sam Wilson or Black Crow replacing Steve as Captain America after like a year, a long storyline leading up to that. Um, I was going to assassinate Steve, which they did later. And it's funny that Sam Wilson became Captain America later also. Um, But I finally landed on Black Crow because I thought, what would be better than to have one of the first Americans be Captain America? You know, I just, and, and I still think it's a great idea. I would love to see a Native American Captain America. That would be really cool. I think they have they have something like that now, actually. Do they? Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's great. They did um, uh, some type of a collection of in, indigenous sort of base characters, mm-hmm. and uh, they made it an indigenous Captain America, which was very nice. Yeah. Well, it's taken forty years, but I'm glad they did it. <laughs> yeah, and and you know, reading through some of like even what would follow yours, from yours to Mark Gruenwald's run, um, there is a lot of things that you guys tried to do and get right 40 years ago that people would think never existed in comics when you sometimes talk to fans today. And and I think if right. you look, you know, it's always been there. 
Yeah, absolutely. It, it really has, absolutely. and I think the the like you guys are a testament to dealing even some you know difficult racial issues. Whether it was in your run or in Mark Grunewald's run when he brings in um, where he, you know Cap No More, and mm-hmm. he and he renames one of the characters in it because of the the history behind what they would call you know when they would call black people Buck or Bucky. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it was done in such a tasteful way that you learned something and then you moved on. It didn't become something that we got to get rid of or, you know, make a... We learned our lesson and we change it. That's the mm-hmm. key. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. That's interesting. What was it like having Mark Grunewald as an editor during this time? Oh, Mark was great. Mark is someone that, you know, if I think about it, it's still kind of astonishing that he's not here all these years later. Um, you know, we were contemporaries. We were basically the same age. Um, he wasn't just an editor. I considered him a friend, you know. Um, and he was great. He was uh, the definitive Mark Grunewald story for me, just to, to say what kind of guy he was. We did this Deathlock story. It was the last the last story that, that Zek drew before he went off to do Secret Wars. And it came because Grunewald came to me and said, there had been this very, very complicated Deathlock story that uh, took place in the future. The future at that point was when they wrote it in the 70s was 1985, I think it was, or whatever. No, 83 probably, because I think that was the, that maybe that was the year that we were doing this. He said, we should really, you know, dovetail, bring back Deathlock and dovetail, this is this story and, and have it meet Deathlock's future and data. And, and Mark being Mark, you know, because he had like this encyclopedic mind of, of the entire Marvel Universe because he, he did the, the whole handbook, you know. That was Mark, you know. He just loved this stuff down to every little bit of minutia. And he did this whole chart. Here's the Deathlock story. Here's what happened here. Here's what happened here. Here's what happened here. It's incredible. Make a, make a story out of it. <coughs> and, um, <coughs> excuse me. And I went home and I read this stuff and I went, She's, I, uh, this is too complicated. I can't figure this out, you know. I remember calling Mark up at one point and saying, ah, I don't know about this. He said, if you don't want to do it, it's fine. And then finally what happened to me was I tumbled on the, the hook I needed to get the story to work, which was that there was there was Deathlock and then there was a Deathlock clone. And to go back to kind of what we started our conversation with, it became a metaphor for our search for ourself, you know. Right. Um, and that's what launched me into the story. But Mark, you know, through through putting together these maps and these just timelines and all this stuff, I, I thought he deserved credit as a co-writer on the book or this co-plotter on that on those issues. And every month I put him in as co-plotter, and every month he took his name out because he felt like I'm the editor. This is my job, you know, to throw ideas out to you, you know, and and that's what he was like. And you know, or he would just say to me, "You're so great with these villains." Here, take the scarecrow and make him interesting. Take take the porcupine and make him interesting. You know, he would throw ideas out like that, and then I take it and I would run with it. You know, but he was he was just a good guy, uh, and and a very skilled editor, and obviously an excellent writer too. You know, so he and and still sorely missed. Yeah, he seems to to he sounds like and seems to have been what would have uh, been a podcaster's dream guest. To oh talk to. yeah. Just because yeah. of the, the knowledge that he had about everything. And he, from from the sounds of it, he loved or, or wanted to write just as much DC as he did Marvel. Yes, I was just going to say that. I think he loved the DC. He just loved comics. Yeah. You know, he. Uh, I, I think it's, you know, careers are long. At some point he might have gone over, just as Mike Carlin, who was his assistant then, went over to DC eventually. You know, Mark might have ended up there. Mark could have been running the show at DC. He could have ended up as editor-in-chief at, at, at Marvel at a certain point, you know. He certainly had that skill set. 
Yeah, it's uh, it's a shame for for all of us, but we're happy that there's a lot of friends who often speak about him, and all the stories are consistent about how much he was loved and how how uh, exciting he made the office when they would get into talking about characters and things like that. Yeah, you know, Marvel, you know, in those, you know, and I was just talking about this the other day because I did a, a, a they did a podcast celebrating Tom DeFalco, who was just had his 50th anniversary in comics. And I was talking about the fact, you know, you, you work in a business long enough, these things start out as professional relationships. And and with certain people, obviously it's not true of everybody, with certain people, they truly develop into friendships, you know, where you really, really, you really care about those people. And they're not just the people you know from work, they're people that you know and care about, period. Right. And, uh, you know, and certain people, it, it, and there was a whole group of people at Marvel in that era that even if we don't see each other much these days, when I do, whether it's, you know, Tom DeFalco or Danny Fingeroth, Carl Potts, Anna Santi, you know, Bob Budiansky, uh, I'm forgetting people, you know, lots of people, Glenn Greenberg, Eric Fine, just, you know, I consider them friends, and it's always great to get on the phone and catch up and just see how they're doing, regardless of what they're doing, whether they're in comics, out of comics, or whatever. Um, you develop relationships that mean something. Yeah, it's uh, it's funny. You mentioned that when I, I was speaking with Steve Mitchell, who was the inker on... Um, oh, sure, I know Steve. Yeah, yeah. so I said... Uh, I go, I'm going to be talking to Jim DeMatteis soon. I go, so you're, you're this episode, he's going to be that one. He said, you mean Mark DeMatteis? And I said, yeah, yeah, that, 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 that's who it is. He goes, because I know him as Mark. He's my friend. And I'm like, I know. <laughs> I don't yeah, I haven't seen Steve in years, but I used to, back in the day, uh, uh, when I, when I used to go out to L.A. for business and things, and, and I, would, I would see Steve a lot in those days. Really nice guy, but I have, God, I haven't seen him in years and years and years. I hope he's doing well. Yeah, he's doing well. He was just recently on the on the show. He's going to be on next week again for a part two. Oh, so well, please say hello to him for me. I will for sure. Um, what did What did you learn from writing about yourself from writing Captain America? What did I learn about myself? That's a great question. I don't have an answer for that. You know, you forget Captain America. Whatever you're working on, yeah, it's yeah. it's it's the first thing it is for me beyond anything. It's therapy. It's, it's, it's self-exploration. You know, therapy, people maybe get the wrong idea when you say therapy. It's self-exploration. You know, I wrote, we talked about this, this novella that I wrote, The Excavator. And I'm working away on this thing, you know, for months and months and months and months. And then it's done and I reread it and I realize I'm working out all kinds of things in my own psyche. Which, when I was writing it, I wasn't necessarily thinking about. Because when you're writing, it's just coming out. But I was working out a lot of my own psychic slash psychological issues through the characters in this story. It's not necessarily literal. Mm-hmm. It's not autobiographical in the strictest sense. But 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 you know, uh, on the realm of psychological metaphor and all this stuff, it is. You know, so you know, I be- have you have to become the characters. You become Captain America. You have to become the villains too. You have to be able to dig into yourself. And find those corners in yourself where the red skull could exist, because we've all got a red skull somewhere deep in the under the waters in the farthest reaches of our psyche. You know, right. we don't want to necessarily look at that, but, but it's, it's there. there in some way, shape, or form. Yeah, for sure. And and so by exploring these characters, we understand ourselves. So there's you know I'm probably in every character. You know I'm in Steve. I'm in I'm in. Uh, I'm in Nomad. I'm in the Red Skull. I'm probably in Bernie. You know, uh, you know. Uh, so, so it, it all becomes psychological exploration. And then when you're dealing with a book like Cap, where it's the themes are political, you can't help it. You know, when you're exploring the gap between the American dream and American reality, 
well, then you're exploring your own feelings about those things. And exploring your own feelings about those things helps you as the writer to grow and understand. And as we said before, writing the villains helps you to, to develop compassion and understanding. You know, many of us growing up had people in our lives that maybe from a child's perspective, we viewed as supervillains or monsters, you know? The, um, and, and I realized that years later too, by, by trying to understand the so-called villains in these stories, I was understanding certain people in my own childhood. You know, trying to understand, well, why would someone do something like that? You know, what drives a person? That's my, always my question. I tell my writing students, it's the big why. Why do they do that? Why does Craven put on leopard skin pedal pushes, take a rifle and chase Spider-Man around? What, what, what happened in his childhood that twisted him so much? Hmm. You know, there, there, there are certain people, I think, that just they're born with certain wiring and their brain is defective and they're just, you know, there's no understanding them, you know? But for the 99% of humanity, when pe people get twisted by something that's happened in their lives or a series of somethings, mm -hmm. uh, they don't just show up one day being sort of a hateful, manipulative, rotten person, you know? Right. And, and somewhere in there is some kid that went through some trauma or some teenager that went through some trauma that turned them and turned their worldview or they were raised by people that fed them stuff or whatever the thing may be. And it's so important to understand that stuff, you know, I go, I, I was telling this story to somebody recently and, and I'm going to get the details wrong. Mm -hmm. Um, but it, again, it's one of these stories about compassion. I heard this years ago on NPR many years ago. And uh, I don't, I don't know what state this took place in. I don't remember the details, but I'm going to, what I'm going to tell you is incorrect, but the essence of it is correct. All right. So there was this neo-Nazi group harassing this rabbi, um, obviously anti-Semitic, harassing this rabbi. And at a certain point, one of the guys in this neo-Nazi group became sick with, I don't know what, but it was he became very ill with something. His neo-Nazi friends um, abandoned him, and the only person who would take him in and take care of him was this rabbi that he harassed. So this rabbi had a choice. He could have said, this is this crazy neo-Nazi who made my life a living hell. Mm -hmm. Instead, he chose to exercise compassion. I mean, that's a comic book story in a lot of ways. You could take that and turn that into a hero-villain story very, very easily, you know? Yeah. Um, and, and you know, stories like that, uh, uh, especially in the real world, you know, uh, it, it's just, again, it just underscores to me. You know, there's that Kurt Vonnegut line, from the famous speech that Kilgore Trout gives to the baby that's born when he welcomes the baby to planet Earth, you know? And he says, there's only one rule that I know of babies. God damn it, you've got to be kind. And that quote, and there's a quote from, from Buddha, uh, that which is most needed is a loving heart, have stayed with me for years. And again, I claim, I do not claim sainthood. I'm as screwed up as any other individual on earth. But that's always the goal. You know, at least you have the goal. And on the days when you live that goal, it's, it's a great day. And the days when you don't, you know, you, 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 you take that in, you try to understand why. And then you say, maybe tomorrow I'll be able to do it again. You try to give it a give it another shot tomorrow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hopefully, you get that chance. It's true. I can sense your personality in your writing, but I feel today sometimes people put they write the character as if they are the character. Where I feel maybe it's um, contradicting what you said before. Like I get you in each of the characters, the compassion, the spirituality, the way of trying to be objective, but I don't feel you've made an avatar of yourself through the no like, no I, the, the, here's here's the here's the paradox you have to become the character 
Right. You know what I mean? You have to, but in becoming the character, you have to put yourself into the character, but you have to remain true. And especially in comics where you've got characters that have been around for 50, 60, 70, 80 years, you have to honor who that character is. Right. Right. So you can't just turn that character into you, but you have to pour you into that character. So that character becomes some sort of fusion, you know. We, and you know, we create a character. The, the the reverse of that is you create, like, say, say I'm creating something original. I create a character from myself. You know, every character in any story that I'm creating, especially if it's an original thing, is just some aspect of my psyche given form as a character. And yet, the character then becomes something individual and distinct from me, and it's not me. So all these characters are us and not us at the same time. But you have to pour all you are into these characters in order for this, for the stories to have psychological and emotional reality, so that readers can pick that story up and feel something. I think that's what that's what makes the difference between a really good story and one that's not. Is that you know people can sense whether someone's just tossing off a story or whether they're really pouring themselves into that story. And I, I think most writers pour themselves into the story, even when they don't know they're doing it, because you can't help it. Yeah, I, I think sometimes it gets to another level where people is like, well, I'm only going to write my story as this character. And it's like, well, you can't make Spider-Man be you. You've got to see the world through their eyes. You've got to enter their right. mind and, and ask the like, you got to answer questions that they might have. You'll answer them. But you still got to make Peter be Peter Parker. You can't yes. write him like Steve Rogers, or they can't. Steve Rogers can't sound like you and Peter Parker the same person. Right, right. And yet, you. And the great thing about Peter Parker is, and I've said this before, you can talk to find five guys that have written Spider-Man, like for any length of time. Those mm -hmm. of us that have actually written the character for a while, and maybe from completely different backgrounds. This guy's Jewish, this guy's Catholic, this guy's Italian, this guy's Irish, this guy's black, this guy, whatever it is, this guy's Latino. Yeah. Everyone identifies with Peter. Yeah, yeah. Peter, has, the, the great thing about that character is he has this resonance that it's like, it's almost universal. Yeah. You know, that, that we all somehow find things to identify with in Peter as he exists, and then we take our own lives and we pour it into Peter and that that and then Peter expands out as a character and takes in these new things that we've added to the character, and we're all sort of you know everybody's got like a little chalice and we're all pouring ourselves into this character. Yeah. And over the course of sixty years, it changes the character, and yet the fundamental of who Peter Parker is remains the same. Right. Right. It's a little bit of all of those people that the baton gets passed to, and Peter absorbs all of those experiences. It's true. Right. You know, it's the same thing uh, with, with just these these, these pre-existing universes um, in the Marvel Universe, the DC Universe, whatever. I, I had this image, and I, I wrote a story for for IDW called the, the Adventures of Augusta Wind. It was two five-issue miniseries. 99% of the public doesn't even know this book ever existed. But it was one of those books that allowed me to really express my view of life, the universe, and everything through essentially what was a fairy tale. Um, and there's a, there's a thing at the end about this giant whale who's like the story beast, contains all the stories ever told in the universe, you know? And that's what it is with these universes. You know, you know so say you're working for Marvel. Well, this, this Marvel whale has been swimming for 60 years now, you know? And it contains every story that's ever been told. And we're like Captain Ahab, and here we come in our ship. And, and you know, it's got, it's got a very thick skin. You can't hurt it. And we all, we, you know, it's my turn. I jump onto the whale's back, and I carve this story into the whale, you know? 
this whale is strong enough. I'm not hurting the whale, folks. No whales were harmed in the telling of this story. <laughs> and, and you know, maybe I, maybe I carve a hundred stories into the whale. This whale has the ability to infinitely expand, to contain all these stories. And then at a certain point, that whale throws me off. And the next guy jumps on and carves a hundred stories into the back of the whale, you know? And then we, we're all part of this thing, and we've all left our, our individual imprint, and yet we're all part of the oneness of this of this great story whale that's moving and moving and will never stop moving. After we're all gone, in some way, shape, or form, these stories will live, the Marvel Universe will live, the DC Universe will live. You know, we'll all just keep rolling on through the waters, you know? Yeah, and that whale has a story for everybody. Yeah, and it has room for everybody. It can expand. Yeah. And that's why, and I never thought about this, you know, I, I've told the story before, I never really focused on the expansion part of it. Because the, the, the world changes, so we have to have room for new stories and new kinds of stories, you know. And I think people, you know, well, I'm attached to the whale the way he was in 1966 or 1987 or 1992. Well, those stories are still there etched into the whale, but he has expanded to allow for new kinds of stories that, did, that we couldn't tell back then, you know. Yeah. Yeah, I remind myself of that all the time because I'm I'm becoming that age where uh, back in my day it was better. Right. Yeah, I, right. I, I have that. Right. And and but the truth is now I can read a lot of those stories that I couldn't when I was young and I couldn't buy all the comics or once they were gone, you know, lucky if you found them. Now everything's coming back and enjoy what you want to read. There's something for everybody. Right, that's the thing. And that's the thing that, that, that you know, really um, astonishes me with some people because it's like, there's so much out there. You don't like that one? Pick up another book. Yeah, that's all. It. Yeah, it's really simple. You know, um, uh, yeah, it's it, you know, it's it, it, it ain't worth uh, it, it ain't worth going crazy about. There's so many stories out there to be told. Yeah, and and things, and we'll never read all the stories that have been given to us already. So take your No, picks. that's why, you know, people ask, well, what, what do you think is the best novel ever written? I realized over the, you know, when I was younger, I would have a very impassioned opinion. This is the greatest novel ever written. Well, the truth is, I haven't read every story ever written. Right. Uh, you know, they're, they're probably the greatest novel ever written. Maybe none of us has read. Maybe it was written by some guy who stuck it in a drawer somewhere or was published in 1802 and went out of print six months later and it's lost to time, you know? Yeah. We don't know. Or, or just the stories that are that exist are out there now. How much can we possibly read? Um, so I always say, I don't know if it's the greatest story ever told, but it's one of my favorite. It's my favorite novel, you know? It means the most to me. But I, I'm not going to say this is the this is the number one greatest thing anymore. Whereas when I was younger, I you know, I love opinion. I love being opinionated. I think it's great to be opinionated and argue about that stuff as long as you realize that in the end, your opinion is 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 fun bullshit. That's all it is. It's yeah. just bullshit. You know. Really? And if you acknowledge that up front, then you and I can get into an argument about why this is the greatest movie ever made and that's not and that one sucks and whatever. As long as I realize in the end that you that my opinion is no more valid than yours. And if you love it, then it's great. Yeah. Yeah. Even if I can't relate to it, if you love it, if there's something in there that sets your heart afire, then then that for you is the greatest movie ever made. Right. I think you know? the I think the only thing comic book fans are are forced to agree on is that the the only person to be called the king will be Kirby. Right. Right. <laughs> and I'm sure there's someone out there <laughs> who will dispute that opinion. <laughs> and that's the fun bullshit, right? Right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I, I started uh, my career uh, as a music critic, you know, was a musician, then as a music critic and uh, learned, you know, learned, learned quickly and painfully that it's like, you know what, your opinion is not set. set it's not a it's not a gold throne sitting there. It's, it's just an opinion. 
It's yeah. just an opinion. You know, when someone and then when someone puts it in print and prints it in a magazine or a newspaper, people take it very seriously too. Yeah. You know, and I, I love I love critics. I love reading reviews of things. And the, the, one of the fun things I love to do is go to like Metacritic or one of those sites, and you look at a movie or a TV, and then you go through go down the entire line of reviews yeah. from like the one at the bottom <laughs> that says this is the worst piece of crap that was ever made in the history of cinema, to this is the greatest masterpiece in Citizen Kane, you know. And I then you realize that. it's all just stuff. So what I look for in reviews is is it interesting? Is it insightful? Does it have something of value to say? You know, even if someone's writing about my work and they don't like it. You know, when it's those like, this sucks, that's not a review. That's just, you know, that's just uh, a, a, an arrested adolescent, you know what I mean? Um, but if someone says, I don't like it, and here's what I think is wrong with this story, and here's what was right, and here's where I think it could have been improved, and I go, that's a really good point. I really still wish they would have loved it, but they don't, and they had something intelligent and valuable to offer, and that's okay. Yeah. Because no matter how much we as creators want the whole world to love our work, it ain't ever going to happen. No. There's going to be people that 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 get what you're trying to do and really really love it. Other people that that and they're not wrong. It just doesn't resonate with them, and they they might hate it. I can see that some of the themes and things that that carve up again and again in my life um, just don't have resonance for somebody else, or or will irritate somebody else, and that's okay. But you don't have to hate my stories or hate me. You can just say, I don't like that writer. He doesn't do it for me. You know, that's fine. I understand that, and I can respect that. It's when it gets, you know, people get just so there's a difference between the opinion that you express in your living room and the opinion you're going to express in the public square and i think as time has passed the line between the living room and the public square has just been dissolved and people so a lot of people out there don't know the difference because because they take their living room everywhere with them yes and the internet has allowed that to happen that's too. right that's right you know what yeah. i mean the, the people don't understand you know I, sometimes i'll see you know even other creators it's like why did you just tweet that? Yeah. What does that serve? You know, I love, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm a big fan of social media. I, for most 90%, 99% of my experiences on social media have been very, very positive. But I also never forget that I'm in a public forum, that I want to be, in the end, as positive as possible. I don't want to drag other people down. It's not, that's not what I'm there for. I'm also there, let's be honest, to promote my work. Yeah. So I want to, you know what I mean? And I find... That if you're putting positive stuff out there, what 99% of the time what you get back are positive people. Yeah. And and the people that don't like my stuff aren't going to bother with me. And I'm and to this day, I'm shocked when someone shows up, uh, you know, on Facebook or Twitter or whatever, and, you know, and they're just there to say something uh, negative or spiteful or hateful or whatever. And it literally shocks me because I'm not used to it. Because most of the people that I deal with are not like that. It's like. Why would you go out of your way to say that? I had something something recently where it was like, I, I was just talking about the fact that a lot of the animated movies that I wrote were on HBO Max, and because you know HBO Max is erasing all this crap now, you know, uh, and you never know what's going to be there. I don't mean this, that the work is crap that they're erasing. Um, yeah. uh, you know, who knows if these movies will be there tomorrow, so now would be you know a time to, uh, to check them out. And people were just talking about the movies and having a dialogue. And this one guy just shows up just to say, for the record, all those movies suck or something to that effect. Like, really? This is, life is precious and this is what you're taking time out of your day 
to do. It reminds me of you know, there's the old Seinfeld thing where, where he gets heckled in the nightclub, and the, and they talk and they talk about wouldn't it be funny if I went to where she worked and I heckled her at work? You know, it's like <laughs> yeah. you want to go to where this person works and go, oh my god, you're the worst bricklayer that God has ever seen. You know, that's their first response, like because it's like why 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 I don't understand the point of it. I really really don't. It's not it's not someone coming to say you know here's what I didn't like about that movie here's what I appreciated about it. it's just it's just negativity for the sake of negativity in a world where we need all the light that we possibly can get truly yeah I I'm the same type of uh, I try to interact the same way because I use it for posting episodes letting people know there's a new one out right sharing something that I like I never want to post about a book that I hate or about something I a movie I dislike like what's the point I'd rather I'd rather you get bored of the fact that every time I post something, it's like, let me guess, another book you like. I'd rather right. that reputation because right. it's like, right. at least you're going to say, you know, I can I can vouch for a good experience instead of telling you all the restaurants that suck. Go to these ones. These are good. Right, right. I, I don't know if we talked about this story, but it's the one where I really learned the, that lesson big time. I, I was doing, I had done some, I was doing a lot of music reviewing and I, got, I, did, a, I did some reviews for Rolling Stone. And did, we, did I ever tell you this story? No. Maybe you did, so but go ahead. Tell I reviewed the Grateful Dead album, and it really wasn't a bad album, but I just because of things in my life, I had issues with friends that were dead. Not not really with them, not with the people. The deadhead culture. The deadhead yeah. culture is like comic book culture. Yeah. It, even, even more so, I think. The fans are just really hardcore. And for whatever reason, my own immaturity is the main reason. You know, I, I didn't like it, blah, 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 blah. So this review that I wrote of this Grateful Dead album, although I had positive things to say, was also very snarky. <laughs> you know, very snarky and unnecessarily so. Looking back now at my younger self, I was like, what did you need to do that for? It's the same thing I feel about this guy, although mine was more balanced. But it's the same thing. Like, you didn't need to do that. And so what happened was I get a package one day from Rolling Stone, and it's all these letters that they've received about this review. Hmm. And <laughs> and these people responded the way that I respond when people criticize something I love. It was as if I'd written a review saying bad things about their mother or father or something. Right. They were so wounded and so they, well, they weren't even angry. They were wounded and hurt, you know? And I read that and I went, yeah, I don't want to be that guy. You know, because and that's when I realized, wait, that's the living room opinion. You know what I mean? That's not the public square opinion. I don't want to be the, I don't, I don't want to be the guy that makes people feel this way. I don't want to tear anybody else's stuff down. And, and, and in fact, I stopped reviewing right after that. I realized, I just want to be the guy creating work, and if other people want to, you know, tear it down, that's fine. I would rather be the uh, creator. But again, as I said, I still really respect really intelligent, you know, compassionate reviewers. I feel the same way when I read biographies. You know, some people you read a, the biography and you know they have an agenda and it's just a hit job. Right. To me, you have to write a biography the way you look at other human beings. You have to write it with some compassion and understanding. You know, yeah, they. You know, I remember reading a, a book years ago. I think it was a biography of Rod Serling. And they were really into. Well, you know, he said this on Monday, and then Tuesday, <gasps> he contradicted himself. You know, I mean, wow. I guess he was a human being, wasn't he? But they were yeah. trying to make him out to be this terrible person for having done it. Um, you know, when uh, uh, let's follow that person around for a week and see how many times they contradict ourselves because we all do it. Yeah, we all we all contain duality and contradictions. That's the business of being human. And one of the hardest lessons I had to learn, because it used to really confuse me when I was younger, is that the duality, the contradictions, can coexist very nicely. When I was young, they used to pull me apart. Duality, good, evil, up, down, black, white, whatever. The, you know, the, these things inside yeah. us—they're pulling at each other. It's a war. And then, you know, as I've gotten older, I see no, no. 
opposites can can coexist and they can float there side by side and it doesn't have to be a war there's the order and chaos that has to mm-hmm. exist and it's a unexplainable beautiful kind of dance right 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 and and it, and and it doesn't have to be the the, the chaos of war you know it, it can be order and chaos at peace with each other in a weird way yeah i we were past an hour and i really wanted to ask you about mayor baba so maybe... okay, we can uh, let's well I can't say no to that. Um... <laughs> because the last time we spoke I asked you a question about some of the people that you would uh, want to sit and talk with if you mm-hmm. could and you brought him up but saying that you kind mm-hmm. of encountered him. So tell me about that experience what uh, what what brought you to that place? All right, when I, understand that when I said I encountered him I encountered him internally. Yes, yes. I never met him no. uh, in person because he died in 1969. All right. <sighs> I have to be careful because you know I, I, less than, you don't want people to think that you're preaching or anything like that. No. You, that's that's the same thing. You know, I write a lot of my stories have spiritual themes. Uh, I'm not preaching. I'm just writing about life and my insights. But some people, as soon as they see a spiritual theme, they think it's preaching. Yeah, no, I uh, don't. There he goes that again, preaching. Again. No, that's not the intention at all. I'm just talking about my life. Yeah, I'll give you this short version. Yeah. <laughs> uh, when I was about 17, and you can read about this in, in Brooklyn Dreams, my autobiographical yeah. graphic novel, Plug Plug, there'll be a new edition out next year. I can't tell you from who, but it will be out next oh, year. Oh, that's great, because I, I yeah. have the digital copy, but I would I desperately want a physical copy. It's a beautiful Yeah, we're going to try to make it a really special edition with extras and a new introduction and all kinds of fun things. Great. So, you know, I was, I as, as a lot of us do at certain points in our life, it's like you, those questions, the big questions really just wham, hammer you over the head. Who am I? What am I doing here? What's the purpose of life? What do I exist? Why do we all exist? Why, you know, all that stuff. And it was just tearing me apart. And I had an experience, which I don't need to get into uh, too deeply, but you know, we can call it, put quotes around it, because it, it, it might evoke the wrong concept for people. But it, we'll, call, we'll call it a mystical experience. Basically, I experienced for me what God was, what this universe is, who we are and why we're here, you know? Um, and that set me off on a path. And I remember thinking, you know, at the time, uh, am I the only person this has ever happened to? Mm-hmm. I mean, what's, you know, because I was young, I didn't know. Um, and I went back, uh, I was a senior in high school, and I went back to visit a high school teacher who was sort of a mentor and friend to me. And he handed me a book called Be Here Now, which in the early 70s was a big deal. It was yeah. written by Richard Alpert Ramdas. Uh, who you may know about, who yeah. started out in the 60s with Leary doing the acid experiments, went to India, came back as Ram Dass, um, became a kind of spiritual teacher. Um, and and this book was just sort of like, here, here's this has been going on since the dawn of time, at the core of every religion, at the core of every path. You know, here's this thing that you experienced. And it was like the door just opened. So I read everything I could. From, you know, I was reading Zen, and I was reading Hinduism, I was reading, you know, mystical Christianity, I was whatever it was. You know, I, I, I wanted to read about it. I was especially drawn to, to the Eastern stuff because it resonated the most with what I had experienced, you know. Um, I wasn't like, you know, steeped in mystical Christianity, although I, I probably would have read some of that, you know. Um, but it was more like Buddha, Buddhism, Hinduism, that kind of thing that really, really. But even within those things, there's so many different versions of that, you know. And then it became like, well, there are people, there are, there are beings out there who have attained this, who are, who are masters. Um 
and I was looking for my master, and I would read about this one, and I would be attracted to the, you know, and I'd, I, I would, oh, Krishna, oh, I love Krishna, oh, Buddha, oh, you know, there was a wonderful uh, Eastern master named Ramana Maharshi who I was very, very attracted to and still has a really special place in my heart. I was just talking to my wife about this. We used to go, go to NYU in New York City and, and meditate with a guy named Sri Chinmoy. He used to do meditations in a classroom in NYU once a week. Um, and it, it, plus the early 70s, that stuff was sort of exploding in my generation. You know, you could, right. there, was a, there were a lot of paths to explore. Um, and I first heard about Mayor Baba in Be Here Now. There was a quote of his about love. Uh, and I'm, I'm gonna, I, would, I would not try to, to speak the quote from memory because I will mangle it. But it has to do about how my version of it is that love is like self-communicative. It, it travels from one to the other. It's like a game of dominoes. That's my phrase. You know, one, love hits one, it's the next, it's the next, it's catching, you know. And I thought that I didn't think much about Maribaba, but that quote really, really landed, you know. And I had an experience after that where it felt like it brought that quote to life. And then a friend of mine, uh, my old friend uh, Cliff Hochberg and I were, we were taking a transcendental meditation class. I did TM, still do TM after all these years, on and off. It's been one of these things that that's, I do with regular irregularity since since those days. And we stopped at this spiritual bookstore near where this class was taking place. And I, oh, here's a book by that Mayor Baba guy. Oh, that's interesting, you know. And I took the book home and I read it. And when I closed that book, I had a very very profound experience, uh, which I could never capture in words. But it was sort of like, okay, this guy's the real deal. I can feel that. Just reading his words has completely altered my consciousness. And you know, over the course of maybe six months after that, what basically happened was I came to recognize for me that this was the guy, this was the master that was gonna, that was gonna lead me on my path for the rest of my life. I was 19 years old then, and, it's, and it's, it's a relationship, an inner relationship that has only deepened and expanded with time. And I don't know how to explain it. I guess, you know, there are people, uh, uh, Christians, who feel that they have a, a, a relationship with the living Jesus, and I'm sure that's true. Uh, Mayor Baba to me is not someone who died in 1969. He is, he is a living presence in my life who is always there and will always, I know, will always be there um, and, and has been there for me all these years. And when people ask me about Mayor Baba, in the, you, know, you know, there was certainly a period uh, in my life, I think, where I was more evangelical about it. You have to read this. You have to do it. You know, you know, and I, I, got, I got over that. You know? <laughs> I always say, you know, if, you're interested, if you have any interest in Mayor Baba, there are books to be read for sure. But if, he's, if he is what he says he is, if he is approachable by all and accessible to all, then ask him in your own heart. If you get an answer, that's great. If you don't get an answer, then there's your answer. That that's not what it is for you. Um, hmm. But for me, uh, he 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 he's the guy. You know, he is the self. We talk about the authentic self, right? That's how we started this conversation. Mm-hmm. You know, and there is uh, the authentic self of our individual personalities. But then there's that authentic self that we all are, and I believe that what we all are beneath the skin, you peel away that shit that we talked about, and then you have your individual identity and my individual identity, you peel that away, and what you have underneath that is God, and it's the same God. You and I are the same God as everybody else, and yes, that even includes Donald Trump as God too. So, (laughs) (laughs) you know, there's the lesson in compassion, right? Uh, Um, And understanding, but it's, it's, it's either true for all of us or it's not true. You know, all these individual identities, this has been my experience over the years, that the world is an illusion, our individual identities are an illusion, and the only reality is God. And what is God 
but this energy that that the only word that I can apply to it is love. But it's a love that is so much bigger, vaster, deeper than 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 even the deepest human love. You know, um, that's the short version. It's I'd love been, to hear it's, the long, it's been a long interesting day. It's been a long, interesting journey, and it's been a journey of lifetimes, you know? That's that's very interesting. Yeah, I'd love to hear the long version of that one day. <laughs> Hopefully, we'll have the time to do it, but uh, I can't wait for the next time we speak. Great. Truly. Great. Well, um, it's, always a, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. Yeah, so likewise. Before you leave, you had a post recently on Facebook about the uh, four or five books that affected your life the most. When you were talking about, uh, I think the book that you're releasing now, the excavator. Right, right. It was. I, I, I should plug that website. And I know I don't remember the name of the website. No, I think I might have it here actually. Yeah, it's 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 sort of an alternative to Goodreads is what they're trying to do with that website. And, yes. Um, and so they asked me, you know, you want to promote your book? Why don't you write a little piece about the five books? Five five books. Not necessarily the five books, but five books that have really had an impact on you. You know. So I, I picked five books that I thought really change our consciousness as we read them you know it's the the website is shepherd.com yeah there we go we want to give them a good plug yeah glad, glad you found that uh, could you recommend a book to me from that list uh, whether it's have you read list? have you read all those books on that i list? have i haven't read any of those books oh okay well the five books if i'm remembering were dandelion wine by ray bradbury mm -hmm. bradbury one of my favorite writers of all time yeah, you speak very um, highly of him. Just, I just, you know, I adore Bradbury, and I love him more as time passes. It's sort of the same feeling I have about Jack Kirby. You mentioned Kirby before. The more time passes, the deeper and uh, Kirby's work becomes. You know, right. uh, and it's the same way with Bradbury. Dandelion Wine is, is my favorite book of his because it's not a science fiction or a fantasy novel. It's the story of the summer, a summer in the life of this boy, and but what he does is he's looking at the world through the eyes of this boy, which is kind of what we talk about, about being five years old. He's not five years old, he's older, but through the eyes of wonder, he's seeing the magic and the miracles in the so-called real world. And there's two kinds of fiction that I like. It, you know, one that's a wonderful thing that fantasy does is that it, it literalizes that inner world. You know, it shows us, yes, that this is a miraculous world and it literalizes it in a fantasy landscape. The other kind of story is the one that takes the world that we're living in right now, and the truth of the matter is, has been my own experience, that this is a fantasy landscape that we're living in right now. If we can look, really see this world, it is radiant with magic and miracles and wonders constantly. Right. Constantly. And that's what Dandelion Wine does. It's one of those books that does that. Um, so I recommend any of those books. Um, Ubik, Philip K. Dick. You know, Philip K. Dick's specialty was, I always say, you read a Philip K. Dick book and you touch the wall when you're done to make sure that it's really there, you know? Mm -hmm. and, and and Ubik does that in some ways better for me than any of his other books. It's just, uh, it's he he really does peel apart the universe. And I think anytime we, 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 we can read something that takes our assumed vision of reality and peel it apart and make us question it, it's a good thing. So that maybe we'll start to look what's beneath that assumed reality and see what's really there um what else was on that book jd salinger franny and zoe yes uh, franny and zoe and salinger is sort of like the other thing i'm talking about he's he's right you know it's not a fantasy novel in any way shape or form but he puts the microscope to the real world in such a way that by the time you get to the end of that book there's a famous uh, metaphor of uh, it's, it's the story of the fat lady he calls it and 
you know, the first time I finished that book, I closed that book and my mind and my heart and my soul just opened up, you know, uh, and, and it's that kind of book. Um, what else? There was a, what was the Lost Horizon? Lost Horizon. Okay. Lost Horizon uh, was written in the 30s. And if you've ever seen the old movie, uh, it's about Shangri-La. That's where the whole thing of Shangri-La came from, this magical place hidden in the Tibetan mountains. And I found this book. I was actually on a retreat at the Mayhair Spiritual Center. They have a beautiful Mayor Baba Center down in South Carolina, 500 acres of pristine woods and, and, and freshwater lakes and cabins, and it's just amazing. And in the library, I found this dusty old copy from the 30s, I think it was, or early 40s of Lost Horizon. And I sat there and I read it every night. And it's one of those things where it becomes the metaphor for, you know, the inner journey that we're all on to our own Shangri-La in our heart, you know. Uh, it's just a wonderful story. Some of it has, as I mentioned in that article, some of it is dated badly. But the overall, overall, it's, it's just a beautiful story. And I, I love it. And Frank Capra made a really great movie of it back in the 30s. Uh, which probably, you know, you could find it on TCM or one of those places. And what was the last book on the list? There's a fifth book, right? Siddhartha Herman Hesse. Oh, Sid Siddhartha by Herman Hesse, yeah. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. I read that book when I was like 16, and it's a book I've returned to over the years as well. And it's the story of a spiritual seeker in the time of the Buddha. And uh, and it was a big influence on Moonshadow, uh, Siddhartha. Mm. Okay. Um, and and, and uh, it's just a beautiful, beautiful book, beautifully written. And, and a beautiful journey. And I remember reading it when I was like 16, and I hadn't had that experience that I talked about, which happened when I was 17. So there was some place in my soul that understood this book. And in my mind, I don't think necessarily understood what, the, what this guy's journey was and what this experience was, but something in there connected with that deepest part of me, you know? And it's one of the certain books, you know, certain books you read at a certain age, and you go back to it, and it belonged to that age when you read it and you can respect it and still love it, but it's not going to resonate for you now. Other books you can return to again and again and again and they deepen with you uh, with time as you deepen as a human being and Siddhartha was one of those books for me. So I would recommend any of those books. St okay, here's your challenge. Start with Siddhartha. Yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah. yeah so There's the I got to accept the challenge then. Okay. And, and, and it's, you know, it's not like, it, it's one of those books that's written in a style that is very smooth and easy to digest, and it just takes you on this journey. And uh, I think, I, I, based on our conversations, I think you'll really like it. Okay. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming on. Episode 300 is in the Pleasure. books. Stay right. tuned for more episodes, everybody. Rate and review the show, and be sure to support J.M. DeMatteis and all his work. 